Today and next week, um, I'm going to be speaking about Christmas, but I'm going to do so in the context of the series that we're going through called The Drama of Grace. And I want you right now, if you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians, what does Galatians 4 have to do with Christmas? Well, you'll find out in just a moment. Many, 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 many years ago, um, a very good friend of Meredith's and mine called Jim and Ann Wallace, they were missionaries to Jews in Brazil, have just such a tremendous heart for the Jews. They have since gone on to be with the Lord, not too long ago, but uh, many, many years ago when they were young, and they were quite a bit older than Meredith and I, but when they were young in Brazil as missionaries, they had heard news that their, one of their teenage sons, 18 years of age, had been involved in a car accident with several other teens. And as they came back out of, from where they were back to the city, they discovered that their 18-year-old son had died. Their heart was absolutely broken, as you can imagine. And as you can imagine, many questions why would such a loving, sovereign God allow this? Um, and, and they went through so much pain. They went through questions and at, at times doubts. And they struggled with this to find God, a loving God, an all-powerful God in the midst of this tragedy. Now, we understand, just in, in what we've been going through, that this tragedy, along with so many uh, e smaller problems, maybe even larger problems, if there are those out there, in which God is working these together in what we are calling the drama of grace. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin a diagram and just lay out some basics for you, but I'm going to come back to this diagram and develop it much more as we look at what we have for us in the message this morning. So, so far right now, we're, we're talking about a couple, Jim and Ann Wallace. And life is going along for them just great. And then a tragedy happens. And I'm going to write it, their 18-year-old son dies. A skeptic or an atheist would look at this and they would say, there is no God and especially in view of this, why would an all-loving, all-powerful God allow your 18-year-old son to die? Now, I want you to fill in the blank. I want you to think, if you can, of maybe the worst thing that has ever happened in your life. God, why would you, if you're all-powerful and loving, why would you allow this? Now, I'm not saying that you're going to completely know the answer. But I believe that God wants to bring an answer. Here's, the, here's what the world does. The world looks at something like this. And number one, they, they begin to accuse God if there is a God. And in these accusations then, they move away from God. They say, you know what? <coughs> if they were uh, seeking to follow the Lord, they abandoned the truth. They abandoned Jesus. And they turn back. Accusations like God created a broken world. And if God created a broken world, doesn't that give us a picture of a cruel God? Now, let me just say that there are many, even in the church, that believe 
that God created a broken world. Look around. You see cancer. You see tornadoes that rip homes apart. Years and years ago, we went up to DeLand to help a community out because a tornado had touched down and literally ripped through this neighborhood. It was a small neighborhood, but just decimated the homes. And we went up there to just see what we could do. And tornadoes can kill people. Um, floods can kill people. Tsunamis can kill people. Disease, sickness can kill people. And there are even in our day, there are certainly atheists that make this claim, but even people within the church that make the claim that God created a broken world. And I'm going to just suggest to you that this is the natural conclusion that they have come to because they have embraced things like theistic evolution, even old earth creationism, believing that the world is 4.54 billion years old. Because all of this brokenness was in the world, and you can look at the geologic column, and they would interpret it as saying, this all happened hundreds of millions of years. The cancer, the disease, all of these things happened way before God apparently created man and man sinned. And therefore, evil, natural evil, that's what I'm talking about right now, not moral evil, but natural evil, do you follow me, was in the world before man sinned. So they conclude, God created a broken world. I'm going to tell you, that's just not true. I'm going to tell you that God created this world some 6,000 years ago, and as a result of God creating man, gave him free will, and man made a choice to sin against God in the garden. And God then told, he warned them that if you do this, the world, if you will, will be broken. You will die that day. Something in you will die, both spiritually and you will in every way be mortal. And so consequently, there was a curse that was placed upon man, but man was the one who sinned and therefore fell. Man was the one who sinned and therefore broke the world. God didn't do that. But then they go on and they make this accusation. They say that he basically leaves man in this broken world all to himself, and God kind of looks down with a cruel, compassionless heart and leaves us in our misery, basically saying, fend for yourselves. And God does not stop all of the evil. You remember when I, I told you this some weeks ago, that if God is obligated to stop some evil, He's obligated to stop all evil, and therefore, there is no such thing as free will. But in order for us to love God, voluntarily, there must be a free will. So consequently, God allowed man to have free will. God made the choice, excuse me, man made the choice to sin. And so when you look at a situation like this, there are terrible things that happen in our world. But the atheist comes to the conclusion it is because God is cruel and God is compassionless. Such a God, if there is one, is not worthy of my worship because he is either impotent or unloving or both. And I'm going to suggest that the word of God has something so important for us that when we look at something like this, this tragedy that as we compare it with what God's word says, we don't come to the conclusion that God is cruel and that God is compassionless, but that God has a hope. 
And that God is inviting us, even in the midst of tragedy, to step into this intimate relationship with him. And know this, that he has this amazing plan for us. And that he's able to take every tragedy and turn it around to bring glory to him and such good to you. Now, I'm going to come back to this point in just a little bit. Is it true that God basically has left man to himself in this brokenness, kind of like a cruel joke? Is he sitting on his ivory throne, looking down and laughing, so to speak? Is he distant, and is there something just maybe broken in his heart that he would leave us in this broken world, this messed up world? Well, I have news for you that he decided not to leave us in our brokenness, but God had a plan. And for that reason, God himself stepped down into our brokenness. He actually shouldered and experienced the very brokenness that you are feeling. You know what? Theologians, those who have studied the word of God extensively, the vast majority of them have come to a conclusion. That at some point in Jesus' life, more than likely either when he was a teen or in his 20s, he lost his father. We don't know when, but we do know that there was at least enough time for his father as a carpenter, some suggest the word is mason, regardless, a builder, had trained Jesus and that Jesus too had taken on that very same trade. And in order for Jesus to excel in his work, I would suggest to you that there was from the time that he was 12 to the time that his father passed away, Joseph is his name, that there was enough time for him to be trained. There were many years. It didn't happen when he was 13, 14, or 15, but much later. Now, mentioning this, because Jesus would have had a naturally close relationship with his dad, his earthly father. And at some point, his father died. The weight of responsibility to support the family fell to Jesus. Maybe that was one of the reasons, there's many, by the way, in which Jesus didn't step into his earthly ministry until he was 30. God the Father had a plan, but Jesus didn't step into the fulfillment of that in his earthly ministry until he was 30 years of age. He had experienced more than likely the tragedy of the loss of his father. You can only imagine in John 11 then when he's standing before Mary and Martha saying, Jesus, if you'd only been here a couple of days ago, our brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. Now, Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Okay, he knows this. The father's already revealed it to him. If you read through the chapter, you, uh, you can understand this. But yet for some reason, when he sees the tears and the agony in their heart and that the look of those who are gathered at the tomb, because they then take him to the tomb, it says Jesus wept. He actually did this twice. And I can only imagine Jesus, he truly understands the tragedy of Jim and Ann Wallace losing an 18-year-old son, losing a father that he was so close to, understanding the tragedies that you go through. God became man and shouldered the pain that you and I go through. He was not distant. He didn't sit on the, his ivory throne looking down, compassionless and cruel. 
he stepped into that mess. He stepped into that chaos. And he became like you and I. And he went through heartache after heartache. Sometimes we think that Jesus, because God was his father in such an intimate way, he didn't go through tragedy. Jesus absolutely did. And scripture, especially in Hebrews 5, makes that very clear. Galatians chapter 4. It says this, starting with verse 4. But when the time had fully come. Let me just word that a, a little bit differently. Just at the right time. Just at the right time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, the context here has to do with sons as opposed to slaves that I'm not going to get into. But I want you to know that from God's perspective, speaking through Paul in an inspired fashion, is saying God had a plan. And in his sovereign plan, at the exact perfect time, just at the right time, that's when he sent his son. God sent his son with a full-blown, perfect plan, perfectly timed. I want to look at this just a little bit closer. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, uh, I, I don't know if you listen to Z88.3 much, but in Luke chapter, in, in Z, on Z88.3, the, they, they play this little section of Charlie Brown's Christmas, okay? And remember, he gets this really scrawny Christmas tree. I mean, even I'm looking at Charlie Brown and thinking, what? You idiot, right? <laughs> Why did you do this? It looks terrible. But he gets this Christmas tree. He puts one bulb on the very top, and it bends it over. And says, I killed it. And Linus kind of wraps his blanket around it, okay? His security blanket, by the way. He gives it up, right? Anyway, he wraps it around the Christmas tree and stands it upright, and then they decorate it, and suddenly this Christmas tree looks great. But Linus reads or quotes from this passage. I'm going to read the section right before he begins. He actually begins in verse 8. We're going to look at that next week. But I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7. And when he's done reading that section of, what is it, 8 through 14, I believe it is, he says, Charlie Brown, this is what Christmas is all about. So if you're wondering, you know, what is Christmas all about, it is this, that just at the right time, that's when God sent his son to begin to unfold this amazing, beautiful, perfect plan. Okay? Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem in the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came, the fullness of time, just at the right time. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, who she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I want you to look at how God 
has set the stage here. And this is important because when God has a plan, there is an intention with that plan, but he has to set the stage just at the right time. God set forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This happened when Caesar Augustus had ascended the throne. Caesar was killed. Remember that phrase, et tu brute? Caesar was killed. Julius Caesar was killed. And Augustus had been voted by the Senate, as I understand, to take his place. Well, during this time, he had decided, you know what? I need more money. We need more buildings. We need more monuments because that is the legacy he wanted to leave behind. Many emperors were this way. They wanted to build huge things to be able to say, yep, with their name on it, that was me. And he was no different. So he, ra- he wanted to raise money. And so he sent out, actually, we're aware of two taxes during the time of Quirinius. Now, Quirinius, some skeptics look at this and say, well, Luke got it all wrong because Quirinius wasn't governor until about you know, 6, 7, 8, 9 AD. Well, we have discovered that he was actually governor in Syria an earlier time as well, around 4 to 6 or 7 BC. So he served two terms, and in each of these terms, there was a census. And so Luke is being very specific. In the first reign of Quirinius, when he was governor of Syria, there was his first census from Caesar Augustus. So Luke is really specifically narrowing in when Jesus was born. Next, we realize that this was in the Roman world. The Roman world had Greek as their common language. Actually, they called it Koine Greek, which means common Greek, because there was a classical Greek that Homer and Ulysses and so on that they wrote in, but the Bible, the New Testament, and even the Septuagint was written in Koine Greek. It's the everyday language of the people. Not the educated talk about how, what people used in politics and in books, but Koine Greek. That was a trade language throughout the Roman Empire that people, now when they heard the news of Jesus and they went out after his resurrection and the falling of the Spirit upon the people, they were able to preach the gospel in Koine Greek and be able to reach an entire empire with the gospel. God was preparing the way for his son and the message of his son to spread throughout the Roman Empire. We also realize that during this time was what they called Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Basically, it helped guard people while they were traveling. There was a law that was over the land, and that law, honestly, in many respects, was good. There's a vast difference when you're traveling through the United States and some other countries. I won't mention those countries, but when you're traveling through those countries, I have heard you want to make sure that you keep a $50 bill in your back pocket because policemen will pull you over and they will bribe you. You will either get a major ticket or you give them 50 bucks. That type of law during the Pax Romana, that, that type of uh, living was now superseded by a law that would bring peace. Now, they could travel, for the most part, from city to city safely in this Roman Empire. We also realize, however, that with 
Caesar Augustus ascending the throne, we begin to see a picture, an evil picture, actually, in which the emperor himself begins to view himself as a deity. And there's emperor worship begins to grow and grow over the decades. And this then becomes countercultural to Christianity. But it actually forces people in these persecuted countries, because it was, if you worshiped one God rather than the emperor, especially in the latter part of the first century, you would be put to death. The stage is being set for good and evil to be opposing each other, for God and Satan to be having different plans and different purposes. And in Daniel chapter 2, we see a picture in which King Nebuchadnezzar, we're talking almost 600 years before Jesus is born. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in this dream, he has a picture, a, a, a vision of a statue. I'm not going to go into the details of the statue, but they actually represent the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of Greece, and the kingdom of Rome. Now, the kingdom of Rome represents two portions. It represents the legs, and then it represents the feet. Now, Daniel tells us that they actually, both of those represent the same kingdom that the feet had 10 clay toes and that they were mixed with iron so it was both strong and brittle. May I suggest to you that the legs represented the, the Roman Republic until, Caesar, until Julius Caesar ascended the throne and then afterwards in establishing the empire under, the, under a, an emperor that... That became then the feet, which would be composed of many nations, because they then began conquering many nations and including these nations. In this vision, it says that a rock was carved out of a mountain and hurled at the feet, not the legs, not the chest, not the head, but the feet of this statue. That's exactly when Jesus was born. He was born after the Republic had then become an empire. Now it does say that when it hit the feet, it destroyed it, and that rock became the largest mountain and filled the earth. Do you see the vision in Daniel 2 that happened 600 years before Christ is born and is still in the process of being fulfilled in which that rock, that kingdom of God is filling the earth. And that is God's promise. It will fill the earth, church, before he comes back. And so this promise is then fulfilled here in Luke chapter 2. The rock is being carved out, and it's getting ready to explode on the feet of that statue in the Roman Empire. It then goes on, and it says, because there was a census, it forced people to go to their hometown where they needed to register. Now, for Joseph, we know that he was from the line of David. It's also very possible, according to Luke chapter 3, that Mary was, if we understand that genealogy, to be Mary's genealogy. And in, in which case, both Joseph and Mary were from the line of David. Therefore, they needed to go to what town church to register? 
Bethlehem. Actually, Bethlehem Ephrata, because there were two Bethlehems in, in Israel. Bethlehem Ephrata was kind of a no-name place in the southern portion of Israel in a region called Ephrata, Bethlehem of Ephrata. And it says this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So we get this picture of a future ruler from the, 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 the royal line, which would be David, born in Bethlehem. Now, can I just suggest that there were many prophecies that were fulfilled during the birth, during just the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. There were actually over 300 that he fulfilled, including his death and resurrection during his entire lifetime. Over 300. Now, skeptics, I mean, my goodness, when you start talking about messianic prophecies, that is prophecies in the Old Testament, and and just if you want to get a number of them, look at Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. You're going to get a ton of these prophecies. And so the, the... these, these prophecies then predicted the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Lee Strobel, who was a legal journalist, in other words, he had a degree in journalism, but he also had a degree in law, and being a, a writer many, many years ago for the, I think it was the Chicago Tribune, he would often rec- write articles about court cases, people being convicted and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, He's done a lot of research in the whole idea of investigation, and he uses this concept of fingerprints. Every person has a unique fingerprint. No two people have the same exact fingerprint. Isn't that unusual? It's kind of like a DNA test. No two people have the exact same DNA. But if you're really close, it's probably because you're a relative, a father, son, daughter, mother, whatever. With a fingerprint, Lee Strobel says, that is just like looking at Old Testament prophecies, kind of like a Micah 5.2. This is one aspect of the fingerprint of the Messiah that we find in the Old Testament. And when you begin looking at all of these fingerprint, all of these aspects of the fingerprint, they lead to only one person, and that would be Jesus. So skeptics, they're aware of this. And, and honestly, if, if, oh my goodness, if, if this is true, if these Old Testament prophecies are true and Jesus fulfilled them, how profound is that? But see, they're skeptics. So their response is very simply, at what, here's what happens. Jesus tried to fulfill these prophecies. Or his disciples shoehorned Jesus into these prophecies, and that's how they were fulfilled. Well, let me just say that it's really hard if someone's the Messiah to be born in a very specific town. That's really hard, by the way. It's really hard for me to control whether I'm born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, or not. That's that's kind of miraculous, okay? And yet, that is exactly what happened with Mary. As a matter of fact, Luke isn't the Luke and Mar, Matthew who record the birth of Jesus and say that she was a virgin. They're not the only ones. Even Jesus's enemies agree with this. If you were to look at the Babylonian Talmud, 
That would be a document that they started writing down in about 200 AD. It was verbal, oral, passed down, eventually written down. If you look at the Babylonian Talmud, they say that Jesus' mother was not married. They come up with the story of a Roman soldier that has absolutely no validity, but they acknowledge that there is something very unusual about this birth of Jesus. I'm suggesting to you that Jesus has fulfilled these prophecies because God is in this process of bringing this grand plan, this perfect, detailed plan together because he has something so good for man to experience. Man is living in a broken world and God is choosing to step down into that broken world to implement his rescue plan. It also says, if we could go back to Luke chapter 2, it also says that he was pledged to be married. Now, this is a little bit difficult, honestly, because Luke says that he was pledged to be married, but Matthew says at the very end that Joseph obeyed the angel. He had a dream, vision of an angel, and the angel said, hey, Joseph, take Mary home as your wife. That's a difficult passage. Did he take her home? See, they're already pledged to be married. They're betrothed, and that betrothal, by the way, is, is much stronger than betrothals in America. It actually takes that portion of the, uh, the, the promise and when you're married, exchanging those promises to make a marriage. But there was, see, there was more. See, Matthew says that Joseph took her home and it seems as if he, they actually did become married. Before you were married as a Jew, you are and you're betrothed, you call each other husband and wife. So as you're reading through Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, before they're married, calls them husband and wife. Luke does the same thing. But Luke says something, and it's odd. He says, if you look there in verse 5, he says, he went there to Bethlehem to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. How does someone describe a woman who is pledged to be married, but in their culture, you then exchange promises, you have a great public celebration, and awkward time, there's a, there, there's a big focus on consummating that marriage. However, with Joseph and Mary, there was no public celebration and there was no consummation of the marriage. How does Luke describe that? They're married, but they didn't have sex. He could have said it that way. He chose to word it this way. They, he, she was pledged to be married. That's how he chooses to word it. Born of a virgin, Micah, excuse me, Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Look further down. We're beginning to see the, a stage set here for the perfect timing for God to send forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. It says here, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 7, even though Jesus is born of the line of David, who was a king, in other words, he's born of the royal line, he's not born in a palace. Where is he born? Well, we don't know exactly 
We've got some good guesses. Tradition says he was born in a cave, and they suggest that maybe it was a cave because that's where the animals were, because Jesus was, after he was born, was placed in a what? A manger, which is a feeding trough. Now, I, I don't want to get into this too deeply, but the word therefore in, if you were to look there in verse 7, because there was no room for him in the in, that Luke uses that word later on in his gospel. Let me tell you where he doesn't use it, and you would expect him to. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. When the, par when the Samaritan finds the wounded, robbed Jew, hurt, and he takes care of him, he takes him to a what? To an inn, a different Greek word. He could have used this Greek word. It's actually kataluma, but he doesn't. He does use it when he refers to a guest room. That is, in Luke 22, when Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells them how to prepare an upper room for the Passover. He, 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 he describes to them how they're going to find this room, but he calls it a kataluma, or Luke does anyway. It's a guest room. It's not necessarily an inn, but it's a guest room. And I would just simply suggest maybe that is what's being spoken of here, a guest room, not necessarily an inn. Regardless, and, and let me just also say this, that this comes a bit strange to us. People would own sheep and other animals, and they would allow them in the first floor of their house. Okay? I'm not sure how comfortable I would feel with that, but they didn't exactly sleep there on the first floor. It was in the second floor, but they would allow animals in the first floor. And this, many suggest, is probably where Jesus was born because there was no room in it. There was no guest rooms available because of the census. And that Jesus, Mary and Joseph were probably in Bethlehem for a while. In most movies, you see Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem, and oh my goodness, she's ready to give birth, and they, she gives birth like as soon as they arrive. Well, Luke gives us the impression that it was after a while of being in Bethlehem, that's when she gave birth. Because it took a while for them to take the census and, and register. All of this, though, is setting the stage for Jesus to be born. Luke, Luke gives us a picture, though, before he moves on to these shepherds. And that picture is that when they came to Bethlehem and they looked for a place, it says there was no room for them. No room for them. Here is a family of the royal lineage who should have had the opportunity of having their baby in a palace in some place of royalty, but instead they're having it in a place where the animals would dwell. They have to place their baby in a manger, in a feeding trough. And we see this contrast of the son of God being born of royal lineage and coming from the royal heritage of heaven itself, and he steps into our brokenness as a man 
humble and in poor circumstances. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the heart of the Father? This is no picture of a cruel God. This is no picture of a compassionless God. This is a picture of a God who is willing to be like you and me and suffer as we suffer and go through the same tragedies and heartaches that we go through, shed the same tears because he wants to step into our hurts and our brokenness to shoulder them. And how is he going to do this? Luke doesn't leave us in the dark. He actually tells us in this very same chapter. When it's time for Jesus to be circumcised, they go to the temple. It's actually when she is, uh, not, when, not when he's being circumcised, excuse me, but when they have to go through her purification rites after 40 days. So Jesus is 40 days old. They go to Jerusalem, and they encounter a man by the name of Simeon. I'm not going to get into Simeon any more than to say this. Simeon encounters them, and he prophesies and says this. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Later, Luke talks about him being a stumbling stone. People's lives hanging in the balance of how they would view and treat Jesus. Anyway, he goes on, this child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and it'll be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This word was spoken to Mary. Simeon, at least to some degree, understands that this child's life will end in tragedy. That he too will die. A sword will pierce your own heart, Mary. The promises that the angel had spoken to her can you only imagine the hope that those promises stirred up? Oh my goodness, I'm giving birth to the Messiah. But Simeon says a sword will pierce your own heart. And there Mary is, we find at the end of the book of Luke, standing before the cross, weeping as she looks at her son hanging on that cruel, cruel cross. The story doesn't end there. And every gospel does this. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. God stepped into our world. He had a perfect plan for the world because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He also had a perfect plan for us, even in the midst of our daily chaos, not just to rescue us from sin, but rescue us from this brokenness in us these hurts and these tragedies, what hope is there? It's found in Christ. If we believe. I'm going to come back to that. Let me go, let me go back to, to the diagram here. Jim and Ann Wallace. Their son is 18 years of age. Taken from this world like that. There were questions that they had. Those questions in some way led to doubts. But they pressed into God for him to resolve those doubts. And I realize that in our day today, in Jesus' church, many pastors 
exalt and elevate this idea of doubts. Doubting is good. Everybody doubts, and doubting is good. Can I just say, can, can we just take a step back? Where in the Bible does it actually say that doubting is good? That in some way it commends doubting. Now, can I say this? God has absolutely no problem with us questioning. God wants your questions. God is not intimidated by your questions, but he does not praise doubting. We do doubt. Church, that happens. I'm not going to commend it to you, but I will commend questions. When I was 20 years of age, I've been following the Lord passionately for six years. I wanted in any some way to serve him as best as I could. I loved evangelizing the people at University of Delaware. My wife and I had known each other for about one or two years by that point, and, and we just loved telling people about Jesus. And then I just started having questions. And some of those questions, I would step back, and, and maybe there was an ounce of, or more of doubt. And I'm just thinking, God, what is going on? And God led me to a lifelong study in what's called evidential apologetics in which he began to allay many of those questions. But there are still questions because this isn't just about finding evidence for God. It's trying to resolve that heartache in here too, that there is a God who has a wonderful plan. It's not just intellectual. It will deal with your heart. There was a man by the name of Charles Templeton seven decades ago, about late 1940s, he actually traveled as an evangelist with Billy Graham, shared the platform with him on numerous occasions. They were close friends. But by 1955, they went in opposite directions. Charles Templeton began to have questions. Okay. He went to seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary. His questions then, as he studied the Bible, turned into doubts. Okay. But in the process of these questions that were leading him to doubts, he did not find resolution to that. He embraced theistic evolution. But then in 1955, his wife died, and he became an atheist. And this is where he ended up, as an atheist. One who claims to be a follower, an ardent follower of Jesus Christ. He turned away from Jesus, turned away from truth. He's written numerous books. I don't commend them to you, but he's written numerous books from his atheistic perspective. And much of what he talks about is this heartache that man encounters every day of tragedy. And why would an all-powerful, all-loving God allow him to go through that? Interestingly, though, when Lee Strobel interviewed him before Charles Templeton passed away with Alzheimer's, Charles Templeton paused in that interview, and he was obviously very emotionally challenged. And Lee asked him, he said, I'm sorry, Charles, what's going on right now? We're talking about Jesus and you're getting very emotional. And this is what Charles Templeton said. He could not accept the existence of God, but this is what he said. I miss Jesus. He knew that there was something about the, 
about Jesus that was world-shaking. And he had turned away from God and he had turned away from this truth that Jesus, as the Son of God, was born into our brokenness to rescue us and to love us and call him back. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to us so that we wouldn't dwell in our brokenness before God but be rescued from it and have a relationship with him and have eternal life. And this Jesus... What a tragedy. Some of us, though, as we go through the questions and the doubts, trying to piece this dot-to-dot matrix together, you remember me using that as an illustration, and just saying, I can't do it. I can't understand it all. And, and, And many of us, especially like the atheists, if I don't understand God, therefore I won't believe in him. Well, can I just say, we believe in a lot of things that we don't necessarily understand. But nevertheless, there are Christians that instead of becoming an atheist, let me diagram it this way. They will flip into neutral. As Christians, they're sacrificing. They're trying to serve God, and they encounter this tragedy. Remember, maybe a a number of tragedies, or like the Wallaces, an 18-year-old dies, or like Charles Templeton Their wife dies. Or some other tragedy, losing a business, whatever it is, feeling betrayed, any number of things. And they just said, you know what? Serving Jesus, it's just not worth it. And they backpedal. They shift into neutral. Their life becomes powerless. It's no longer fueled in this desire to to follow hard after Christ. And they backslide. And, And can I just say this? I'm using the word neutral. Because in their mind, that's what they're doing. But can I just tell you that whenever a car is going uphill and it shifts into neutral, it never stays in the same place. It will always move backwards. So if you have shifted your life into neutral for any number of reasons and discouragement in following Jesus, why sacrifice so much? You stop reading the Bible. You stop praying. You stop really pressing into Jesus and and you just say, you know, I'm going to coast. Well, you will not coast forward. You will always coast backwards. And so we we choose this route. We, we, We at least haven't become an atheist. We haven't rejected Jesus, but we have shifted into neutral. I'm gonna I'm gonna term it this way so you understand that in our hearts it feels like we're neutral, but we're truly moving backwards. Another tragedy is many of those who do this and shift into neutral eventually move in this direction. Now, I've purposely diagrammed it this way because as we look at this diagram, it points somewhere. And the direction in which it points is the direction that Jim and Ann Wallace chose to go. And they moved forward. In the midst of their tragedy, they moved forward. They pressed into Jesus. They said, it's Jesus or nothing. I mean, I'm going to follow him. Why wouldn't I? They understood that Jesus stepped down into their brokenness, and he experienced tragedy. My goodness, he died at 33 years of age. What an amazing life he could have had, right? 
But see, he came for this very reason. God had a plan. And it was a perfect plan. Even his death, even his resurrection fell within that perfect plan. You remember Romans 8, 28. I'm going to write that up here. Romans 8, 28. Many of you could probably quote that with me. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Love God, that's what we do. Called according to his purpose, that's what God does. By, by grace, through faith, we are saved and we encounter his purpose. Now here is the challenge. God works all things together for the good of only those who are in covenant relationship with him. This promise is not given to those who reject Jesus, to those who keep him at an arm's length. Did you, no, no, for those who have chosen to be an atheist, for those who have chosen to just find some religion, that promise is not for them. Can I say, though, that if you find yourself in that situation and people are praying for you, here's what I promise that God will do. He will bring people. He will bring circumstances into your life. He will allow certain things to happen in your life to bring you to him. I'm not saying that he's going to work all things together for your good, but he will work some things together to bring you to him. And it is your choice whether you choose to follow him. No matter what tragedy you face in life, to follow him and say yes to Jesus Christ. He invites us to believe in him. Not to be like the world did when Jesus was born, in which there was no room in the guest house. That is what the world does. Sorry, Jesus, no room. I'm too busy pursuing my business. I'm too busy having fun and enjoying life and partying. I am too busy caught up in sports. I am too busy pursuing intellectual pursuits. I, I'm too busy with family. I'm too busy with you fill in the blank. And we pursue all of these things in the world and we say there is no room for Jesus being first place in my life. That's what the world says. Luke challenges us now. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is saying, believe in me. I want you to think about something. I'm using a, 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 an illustration, an example here. I, I personally enjoyed the movie Elf. I think it's funny. I, I can't say that I agree with its theology too much. If you have seen this movie, you will know. And I'm not. This isn't a spoiler. This isn't a spoiler. I don't believe. But towards the end of the movie, Santa Claus is trying to get through Central Park in New York, right? And do you remember why he gets grounded? Because there's not enough belief in Santa Claus. But if you just believe in Santa Claus, you'll make his sleigh fly. And so. That's actually what happens. They see him and his reindeer and his sleigh flying above, and Elf is in the back waving to everybody. What a cute little scene. And all of a sudden, the I think it's called the clausometer, something that goes boing all the way up here, and the sleigh can now fly. 
believe in Santa Claus, and the sleigh will fly. Wow. What does it mean in that little scene to believe in Santa Claus? It simply means believe that he exists. And I'm going to suggest to you how very different that is when Jesus says, believe in me. He's not inviting you to just believe that he came to this earth. To look at this Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 and say, I believe that. I believe those facts. Well, how about this? In verse 11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. I would even say before I was turned 14 and had an encounter that changed me with God, I would say I, I did believe Jesus was the Savior of the world. I believe that he was the Christ. I believe that he was Lord. He was God come in the flesh. I believe these facts, but I had never truly believed in Jesus. You see, that invitation to believe in Jesus is not like believing in Santa Claus and believing that he exists and making Santa sleigh, rot, sleigh fly. But to believe in Jesus means you are surrendering your heart to him. You are saying, I am choosing to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. It is that heart devotion to say, I will follow him. Even in the midst of tragedy, I am going to pursue him because I believe that God had a plan and he sent his son and he equally has a plan for you and me. Romans 8, 28, he equally has a plan, and it's a detailed plan, and it's thousands of dots that he can connect, but we can't, and it all works together. But because, like the atheist, maybe we can't see that, he chooses not to, but even in our questions and our doubt, we end up saying, you know what, it doesn't make sense, and so... I'm either going to turn away or I'm going to remain in neutral. And so my question to you is, in view of questions and doubts, what are you going to choose? Are you going to follow Jesus? Believing in him? Are you going to trust God's sovereign plan who at just the right time sent forth his son, born of a woman, a virgin woman, to rescue you from your sins. That is the Christmas story. That is our hope. That is the promise, Romans 8, 28, that we have, that because we love him and believe in him, I know that all of this stuff going on will one day make sense. I believe that. Because he initiated and stepped down into my world to rescue me with a plan. Can you stand with me? I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning that if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, not the way they did in Santa Claus in the movie Elf, but in how the Gospel of Luke challenges to trust in Jesus, to surrender to him, in God's perfect plan, perfect timing.
and to embrace his perfect plan for your life. And would you be willing to do that? You know, maybe this morning you find yourself as a Christian, but you're in neutral. You're not turning away from him, but you're beginning to wonder, why am I doing this? There's so much sacrifice, and you know what there is? There really is, because that's what faith is about. Can I encourage you now? Embrace the one that in God the Father's perfect plan was sent to this earth for you. To come and die. To rise from the dead. So that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. And spend eternity with him, the God that created you. Father, you are so good. The world accuses you. You're cruel. You're, you're uncaring. You've left us in this world and offer us only some mental but not real hope. No, God. You loved us so much you stepped into this world of mine to shoulder my pain and to give me a way out, to give me real hope. And I just ask you, Father, wherever we are at this morning, speak to hearts. Call them God. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called. God, I pray, call people this morning. Call them to your son, Jesus. Call them out of darkness into your light. Call them out of neutral into pursuing Jesus again. Father, deal with our hearts today. And we trust in you. You are so good. Spirit of God, I'm just asking right now, speak to hearts. Tug on those hearts. Open eyes to the truth again. Call them to yourself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for hope. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Born at the right time for us. In your perfect plan, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. I just want to encourage you, if, if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now, that you would allow me or maybe one of the leaders to pray for you. Maybe you've just been discouraged lately. And the doubts and the questions are coming so strongly. Allow us to pray for you. Or, or maybe you have not made that choice yet to follow Jesus. I'd love to pray with you. That Jesus would change your life. So I want to invite you up here for prayer if you'd be interested. Okay, Father, I just pray, bless each of us as we look forward to that celebration we call Christmas of Jesus' birth. Fill our hearts with hope and expectation, not as far as what we are going to get Christmas morning, but Father, what we can give, especially that good news of Jesus.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.